Okay, I'm going to be talking about Wordsworth's ode, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood, or as it's more commonly known as, Wordsworth's Immortality Ode. Um, the poem was written in two stages. So he wrote the first four stanzas in 1802 um, amongst a series of poems that he wrote at that time about childhood. And he didn't finish the poem until 1803. Um, the poem is clearly structured into three separate movements. So the first four stanzas make up the first movement. That's the movement that he wrote in 1802. And that movement focuses on youth and innocence and particularly the loss of youth and innocence and he ends the first movement um at the end of stanza four with a question where is it now the glory and the dream um and he doesn't actually answer that question for almost two years when he finishes the poem in 1804 um in movement two where he gives his explanation um of anamnesis which is this concept um, developed by Plato, which states that humans possess an innate knowledge which they acquired before they were born, um, and that learning in life consists of rediscovering that knowledge from within ourselves. So anamnesis basically is this theory that we have recollections of a previous existence from before we were born. Um, and in the poem, Wordsworth makes it explicit that he believes that life on earth is a kind of a shadow of this earlier existence that we had before our birth, a kind of purer existence, and that we can very dimly recall that pre-existence in childhood, but that as we grow up um, and mature, we forget our pre-existence. So children, therefore, have, according to Wordsworth, the ability to witness the divine within nature because they still have some memory of their pre-existence. But we lose this as we get older. Um, so that's kind of the focus of movement two. And that's um, in stanzas five to eight. Then the last part of the poem, movement three, which is stanzas nine to 11, is was worth trying to justify the value of a life where this vision of of the divinity of nature and our memories of our pre-existence have gone so basically how how can we justify life as adults where we don't have the ability to recollect our our pre-existence or to see the divine power of nature in the way that children can and um, the poem's written as an ode, specifically a Pindaric ode, which is a form that's typically ceremonious and, and celebratory and um, is in, a, in a, a triadic structure, in other words, a three-part structure. So this one clearly is because it has three movements. Um, Pindaric odes typically have quite irregular forms, so the stanzas are of varying lengths in this poem. They often have lots of digressions so um the topic kind of jumps around it, it leaps from from one idea to another quite erratically the feeling of a pindaric ode is often quite energetic quite impulsive and they often contain um quite dramatic statements so this poem really does fulfill all of those conventions of the pindaric ode um the poem begins with the epigraph, which is taken from 
a poem that Wordsworth wrote um, earlier in the same day and when he started the Immortality Ode. Um, it's the last three lines of a poem, um, The Rainbow. So he writes, The child is father of the man, and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. Um, piety is kind of uh, to do religion. So I think the, the most important line there probably is the first one, the child is father of the man. So it's this idea that the child um, is what kind of creates your future self. It's referring to this, this idea of pre-existence, that the child has this kind of earlier recollection of, of their pre-existence. Um, so he's just introducing, um, that idea. That's what an epigraph is intended to, intended to do. It suggests the theme of the poem. So this poem therefore is going to be about childhood. It's about pre-existence. It's about the kind of natural divinity. Um, and then stanza one begins, there was a time when meadow, grove and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. So he begins the poem with this phrase, there was a time, which kind of sounds like the opening to a fable or a fairy tale. So it sounds like this great old story. He's sort of mythologizing early childhood. Um, and he lists these elements of nature, the meadow, the grove, the stream, so on. And he says that they seem to be apparelled in celestial light. Apparelled, um, apparel is clothing, so they are so they seem clothed in celestial light. Celestial uh, meaning kind of heavenly. So there seems to be this heavenly light that all of nature is clothed in. So this is referring to this time in the past when Wordsworth was a young child and that's when he could see this heavenly light in all of nature and he goes on the glory and the freshness of a dream it is not now as it hath been of yore so the reference to this dream makes it seem like this was something that was quite temporary quite fleeting um we think of what it's like when you wake up from a dream and for a time you can remember it quite clearly, but that memory soon fades and we forget our dreams. Um, so there was a time when the dream still seemed fresh to him back when he was a child. Um, but he says, it is not now as it hath been of yore, your meaning a, a long time ago. And it's quite an archaic word. It, it adds to this sense of this seeming like a kind of an old myth, myth that he's telling. So he has now lost the glory and the dream that he had when he was a child. And he ends the stanza with, Turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen I now can see no more. So here he's introducing the key problem of the first movement, that he can no longer see this glory, this dream that he could when he was a child. He no longer can see everything apparelled in celestial light so he has lost the ability to see the divinity in nature that he had when he was a young child because he has matured he's grown up he has lost his recollections of his pre-existence and you see those short lines there turn wheresoever i may by night or day that the lines are shortened they seem to be speeding up he's desperately trying to find um 
the ability to, to see this divinity in nature, but wherever he looks and whatever time of day or night, he cannot do that. And that's the key problem of the first movement. He goes on in stanza two to um, describe the beauty that he sees in nature. He says, the rainbow comes and goes and lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth and yet I know where'er I go that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. So he talks a lot about temporary images of beauty in nature we get this sense of the impermanence of the rainbow it comes and goes um the rose is lovely but of course it will wilt the moon um is full of delight but of course the moon has a cycle it, it's not always there um so beauty in nature um is is temporary um the moon is personified as looking around with delight at the um the clear sky at night where, where the heavens are bare and um everything about nature including the waters um are beautiful and fair he says he talks about the sunshine as a glorious birth um which of course um references this idea of when we are born it's glorious because we still have memories of our pre-existence um, the idea of the sunshine and the, uh, and a new day is is clear here. Then in the final two lines, he reintroduces the problem that he set up in the first answer, and that's signalled by the the word "but" there um, on the penultimate line. But yet I know where'er I go that there has passed away a glory from the earth. So he repeats that idea of where, where'er I go. It's very similar to wheresoever I may from the previous stanza. So again, he's searching everywhere, but he still can't find this glory that he used to be able to witness when he was a young child. It has passed away. So he's mourning his loss of the sight of the divine in nature, which he has lost because he has got older. The third stanza um, begins with now to uh, make it clear that he's talking about his current position as, a, as an adult. Now, while the birds thus sing a joyous song and while the young lambs bound as to the tabor's sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. A timely utterance gave that thought relief and I again am strong. The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. Um, so he is surrounded by nature. He hears the music of nature. The birds are singing a song that's full of joy. We have the image of the young lambs. Um, I mean, lambs are inherently young, but he emphasizes that even more with the adjective young there. And they bound, which is an, a, a verb that suggests a kind of a joyful, carefree way of moving so we get a sense of the the innocence and freedom of the lambs they seem to be moving as to the tabor's sound a tabor is a musical drum perhaps suggesting um this sort of rhythm of life or rhythm to the natural world so the first three lines present a really positive view of nature but he says to me alone there came a thought of grief so even though he is um, surrounded by all these lovely images and sounds of nature, he feels grief. 
the grief, of course, being that he has lost the ability to see the div- to, to see the divine in nature because he has matured and lost his memories of pre-existence. But, he says, a timely utterance gave that thought relief and I again am strong. The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. So he hears a timely utterance, a sound that comes just in time. And that sound is the sound of waterfalls, the cataracts. So just in time, he hears the cataracts, the waterfalls, which relieve his grief and make him feel strong again. So that's a really typical romantic idea that nature restores him. And um, he is the metaphor of the, the trumpets to describe the sound of the waterfalls, continuing this idea of nature being musical. Um, and a trumpet, of course, is a very, very strong, powerful sound. It almost kind of snaps him out of his feelings of grief um, and and relieves him. The cataracts come from the steep. It says the steep, referring to the, the slope of the mountains. And he goes on, no more shall grief of mine the season wrong. I hear the echoes through the mountains throng. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep and all the earth is gay. Land and sea give themselves up to jollity and with the heart of May doth every beast keep holiday. Thou child of joy, shout round me. Let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. So the second half of the stanza is is very, very positive. He says... Um, no more shall grief of mine the season wrong. So he's saying that it would be um, wrongful for him to feel grief um, at the moment because it's it's May, it's springtime, and to feel grief when surrounded by all the beauty of spring would be wrong. It would be, um, yeah, it would be wrong of him to do that. So you get a sense of his, his resolve there um, when he says no more shall I feel this grief? Or perhaps it seems a little bit forced. Um, But yeah, certainly he is recognising that he doesn't want to feel grief. He says he hears the echoes through the mountains, which are, which are thronging. So you get a sense of the sort of all of these many, many echoes sounding out through the mountains. It's very much a stanza that's focused on sound. Um, and the winds come to me from the fields of sleep. So it's almost as if the winds are seeking him out to provide some sort of solace or relief. Um, they come from fields of sleep, which is a really lovely, peaceful image. Um, and all the earth is gay, a really short, simple line to reinforce his feeling that the whole world is very happy. Land and sea give themselves up to jollity. So jollity meaning kind of joy, being jolly. So everything from the land and the sea, the whole earth is completely given up to joy and happiness. So we've got a real semantic field of happiness in this this stanza. And with the heart of May doth every beast keep holiday. So May, the actual season of spring, is kind of personified personified as having um, a heart which um, is, is beating with joy and every beast, every animal is keeping holidays, so kind of celebrating and, and enjoying um, life as one does on a, on a holiday. The last three lines, he addresses the, the shepherd boy, who he calls thou child of joy. So the epithet there, child of joy, is used to describe this shepherd boy. And he uses these imperatives to address the shepherd boy. He says, shout round me, let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. So he is calling out and appealing to the shepherd boy to shout with joy. Again, 
an image of of sound um, right to the very end of the stanza, and this time it's the happy shouting of a child. The fourth stanza and the last stanza of the first movement, he um, goes on to address the creatures, the blessed creatures. So these are gods, animals on earth. Um, and he still talks about mu- uh, about sound here. He says, I've heard the call ye make, ye, sorry, ye to each other make. So the animals on earth are communicating with each other. We get that sense of this connection within nature. Um, and he has he has heard this as well. And he says, I see the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee. Jubilee means uh, rejoicing. So the heavens are laughing with the animals, um, suggesting perhaps that God takes joy in the animals who are also full of joy. My heart is at your festival. My head hath its coronal. The coronal, a coronal is a circle of flowers. So he is um, embracing the season by um, putting these flowers around his head and he feels his heart kind of with the animals in this, um, in their celebration. The fullness of your bliss, I feel, I feel it all. So he says that um, these animals are full of bliss and he shares that and he repeats, I feel, um, and uses the phrase it all to emphasise just how much he completely feels the bliss that they are feeling. He then goes on with this exclamation, Oh, evil day, if I were sullen, while earth herself is adorning this sweet May morning. So this is um, reiterating an idea from the previous stanza. It would be evil if he felt sullen. So if he felt gloomy and sad, it would be evil of him to feel that way when when the earth is so full of joy. The earth is adorning the sweet May morning. So the earth is actually adorning itself, decorating itself with flowers. Um, And he talks about the flowers in the next part of the stanza. He says the children are culling on every side. So the children are are picking flowers here. They are cutting them down. The the word culling there, I don't think is meant to have any negative connotations. I think it's meant to be, it's, it's not an image of humans you know, killing nature. I think rather it's supposed to be a kind of natural positive image of children picking flowers and making coronals, um, which is something that is is perfectly uh, natural. On every side, in a thousand valleys far and wide, fresh flowers. While the sun shines warm and the babe leaps up on his mother's arm, I hear, I hear, with joy I hear. So he's emphasizing the the vast reach of nature a thousand valleys far and wide and these fresh flowers cover everything in this sweet may morning the sun is shining warm so it's very very pleasant um it's um referring back to the glorious birth of sunshine in um in stanza two and um he then describes this babe this baby which leaps up on his mother's arm so the babe of course um, represents the innocence of childhood. The babe has just been born, so it still retains memory of it, of his pre-existence um, and therefore the ability to see the, the glory of the divinity within nature. And that verb leaps, I think, recalls the, the young lambs from stanza three. So it's suggesting that this child is, of course, very innocent and full of joy, just like the lambs were. 
and you've got the protective image of the mother in his mother's arms and Wordsworth says I hear I hear with joy I hear so he repeats that phrase I hear three times to show just how um, full of joy he is and how able he is to hear um, all of these sounds there's then a shift when he says but there's a tree of many one a single field which I have looked upon both of them speak of something that is gone so the tree I think re- represents um, a, a kind of more mature um, and experienced figure you know it makes me think of perhaps a tree of knowledge a tree is something that has grown um, over many many years trees of course can live to be thousands of years old so this tree reminds Wordsworth um, as does this field that he sees they both remind him of something that is gone so he's kind of brought back to his former problem now when he sees the tree in the field he remembers um, or, or he yeah, he, he is reminded of this this something that is gone, which is, of course, the childhood ability to see the divine in nature. And even the pansy, which is a flower at his feet, also um, reminds him that. He says, Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now the glory and dream? So he ends the, the stanza and the movement with these two questions. Where has this visionary gleam that he had as a child, where has it fled? It's not just gone, it's fled. It has run away um, from him. It's abandoned him almost. Where is it now? The glory and the dream. So he repeats the image of glory and dream from earlier in the poem. Um, So he is questioning where his ability to see the divine presence in nature to recollect his memories of pre of his pre-existence where his soul existed before he was born and he's wondering where have they gone um it's a very um kind of sad and hopeless ending to the first movement and of course Wordsworth doesn't answer these questions for almost two years so that's the end of movement one So movement two begins with the fifth stanza and this is probably the most famous stanza in the poem. It's the one where Wordsworth really explains the theory of pre-existence and Plato's philosophy. He begins the stanza by saying our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting and that's quite an interesting idea because we'd probably more usually think of being born as waking up, coming to life. But here, for Wordsworth, it's actually falling asleep and forgetting. So the idea is that we existed, our souls existed before we were born in some sort of more vivid, more glorious place. And when we are born, we are are kind of going to sleep from that and forgetting that pre-existence. He writes, the soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. So here he is um, describing the soul. He uses the metaphor of, of a star to describe the soul. And he says that the soul came from somewhere else. It, it was set, it, it set somewhere else. It came from far away. So the soul comes from this divine place um, 
the soul is formed before we are born. But he does say that we are born not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but training clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. So here he seems to be alluding to the idea of innatism, that we are born with prior knowledge. So we're not entirely um, ignorant of our pre-existence when we're born. We do trail these clouds of glory which come from God. Um, and God is our home. That's where we are. We come from, where we are born. So we are born, our souls are made um, with God, by God in this divine place, perhaps heaven. And he goes on, heaven lies about us in our infancy. So we are, when we're born, surrounded still by um, the shades of heaven. But... He says the shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. So the prison house, which perhaps is the, the adult world of man, or maybe it's a kind of prison of our own body or humanity. As we as we grow up, this growing boy, that prison house closes upon us. It, it becomes um, um, closer to us. It surrounds us and distances us from the divine presence that we experienced before we were born and that we can still remember in the early years of our life but he beholds the light and once it flows he sees it in his joy so um this idea of of light um is continued in the next line the youth who daily farther from the east must travel um so the the sun rises in the east so there is a uh, a metaphor here of um the sun rising in the east um which continues the the idea from um stanza 2 of the sunshine is a glorious birth so in other words what's happening here is the as the youth gets older as he ages and therefore comes further away from when he was born um from the east when the sun was born um still it says he is nature's priest and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. So this youth, um, he must, um, he must go, grow up. Um, he must travel further away from his place of birth, but he still is nature's priest. So he still worships nature. Um, and he is attended on his way. So he's looked after on his travels through life by the vision splendid so his divine vision kind of looks after him and finally um Wordsworth writes at length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day so he's no longer a boy or a youth he's now a man um and he recognizes that his ability to see the divine in nature has died away it's faded into the light of common day so it's no longer a kind of celestial light from God, but just the light of common day. Stanza six um, is a, a short stanza about um, nature. So Wordsworth writes, the earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own, yearning she hath in her own natural kind, and even with something of a mother's mind and no unworthy aim, 
the homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child, her inmate man, forget the glories he hath known, and that imperial palace whence he came. So Earth is personified here as as a mother, kind of mother nature figure, who is um, filling her lap with pleasures of her own. So she is giving birth to um, natural pleasures and all the wonderful things in nature. And um, she's described as being like a nurse who is taking care of um, her foster child, who is man. So man's um, original parent, of course, is God. But um, while he's on Earth, he is fostered by Mother Nature, by Earth. She looks after us while we are away from heaven um, on Earth. Man is described as being an inmate which links to the idea of the prison house from the previous stanza so it's almost this idea that we're kind of serving a a prison sentence on earth before we can return to um, the heavenly state that we experienced before we were born and mother nature seems to try her best to make this prison sentence on earth easier because she fills our um, she fills the world with all of these natural pleasures and they help us to forget the glories he hath known and that imperial palace whence he came so that imperial palace whence he came is the the pre-existence um in this divine place this heavenly place before we were born um and perhaps she's making it easier for us alternatively it's the it could be almost the idea that actually we are sort of distracted by um all of these wonderful things in nature and and it's our fixation with earthly pleasures um and the sort of the the world around us that cause us actually to forget our um glorious recollections of our pre-existence stanza seven wordsworth um, describes a child so he says behold the child among his newborn blisses a six years darling of a pygmy size so we've got a, a little six-year-old boy um, and he describes him he says see where mid work of his own hand he lies fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses with light upon him from his father's eyes so we've got this this little boy um, and he's playing um and he is fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses kisses that's an interesting um way of describing um a mother kissing her child because fretted means worried but also to kind of be worn away gradually so it almost suggests that this this child is is kind of gradually worn away by his mother's kisses which are described as sallies and a sally is a a kind of sudden charge or or an attack almost so is it the sense that actually um the the adult mother is sort of gradually wearing away this child's ability to see the divine um in everything or alternatively is it this idea that actually this little six-year-old child the only thing he's got to worry about are his mother's kisses which of course uh, are nothing to worry about at all so it's just reflecting the sort of innocent state of childhood the light upon him from his father's eyes and the sort of image of love and care that comes from the father there seems um, very positive as well. Then Wordsworth goes on to describe this little boy and the way that he's playing. 
see at his feet some little plan or chart, some fragment from his dream of human life, shaped by himself with newly learned art, a wedding or a festival, a mourning or a funeral, and this hath now his heart, and unto this he frames his song, then will he fit his tongue to dialogues of business, love or strife. So we've got a description here of this little six-year-old boy playing at being an adult he is um he's you know he's pretending he's at a wedding or pretending he's at a funeral so he is he's playing and pretending um to be an adult and all the things that he has seen adults do the image of his dream of human life um takes us back to the image of um our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting from from stanza five so that that when we are alive as as humans this really is just a dream before we will wake up again one day and return to our prior heavenly state um so we've got this description then of the of the little boy playing at at being a grown-up um and Wordsworth continues this he says but it will not be long Ere this be thrown aside, and with new joy and pride, the little actor cons another part, filling from time to time his humorous stage with all the persons down to palsied age that life brings with her in her equipage, as if his whole vocation were endless imitation. So the little boy is described as being a little actor because he is playing a role. He's pretending to be an adult and playing the parts that he has witnessed the adults around him play. Um, life is endless imitation so he is imitating others and um, Wordsworth seems to be referring to a very famous um, speech from Shakespeare's All's World That Ends Well about the stages of man um, all the world's a stage um, you're probably familiar with it um, and this little boy is kind of playing all those parts he's pretending to be all the different ages all the way up to palsied age um so when you're a very very old person um shaking with palsy so um his whole vocation it seems were endless were endless imitation so this little boy's entire vocation his whole job or purpose is to imitate adults and to imitate being an adult Stanza eight, Wordsworth is now addressing um, this this little boy. He says, Thou, whose exterior semblance doth belie thou soul's immensity, thou best philosopher, who yet dost keep thy heritage, thou eye among the blind, that deaf and silent reads to the eternal deep, haunted forever by the eternal mind, mighty prophet, seer blessed. So he's saying that, the um, exterior semblance or the outward appearance of this little boy doth belie his soul's immensity. So in other words, the appearance of this child doesn't show the greatness of his soul, but actually he is the best philosopher. So Wordsworth believes that a child is the best philosopher. Um, he is an eye among the blind. So that's an interesting metaphor that this child, he has this ability to see he can, of course, see the divine presence in the world, whereas everybody around him is comparatively blind because they have aged and matured and don't have this sight that the little boy has. Everyone else is, is deaf and silent um, because they are adults. 
whereas this little boy can read the eternal deep so he can see eternity in everything. He is a mighty prophet, a seer blessed. Um, and those epithets there present the child as being, he's mighty, he's a prophet, so a a teacher of God's will. So he's kind of um, like God's representative on earth even. He is a seer, so he is blessed because he can see um, and he can see the divine presence in everything. On whom those truths do rest, which we are toiling all our lives to find in darkness lost, the darkness of the grave. Thou over whom thy immortality broods like the day, a master or a slave, a presence which is not to be put by. Um, so this little boy, he, he, these, these truths rest upon him. Whereas the rest of us are toiling, we're struggling all our lives to find them, but we've lost them in darkness, um, a darkness which is compared to death. And that reminds us of Wordsworth in stanzas one and two, who is desperately um, looking for this ability, which, which he'd, he'd lost because of his age, whereas the child still has that. And immortality there is described as being something, you know, powerful and brooding. It's like a master. It's a presence which is not to be put by, so not to be set aside or, or, or underestimated. And Wordsworth continues addressing the little child. He says, Thou little child, yet glorious in the might of heaven-born freedom on thy being's height, why with such earnest pains dost thou provoke the years to bring the inevitable yoke, thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife? Full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight, and custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost, and deep almost as life. So he is um, he's speaking to this child who he sees as glorious. Um, he has a, a heaven-born freedom because he is a child still. His being's height refers to his, his short stature because he's only a little six-year-old child. And Wordsworth is, is asking this child, why are you rushing towards adulthood? We've seen in stanza seven that this child is imitating being ad an adult. He's playing at being a grown-up. And Wordsworth is saying, why are you doing that? Why are you rushing to become an adult? He's saying, you know, you're going to experience the inevitable yoke eventually. A yoke is something oppressive and restrictive. So he sees this yoke of adulthood as something that is inevitable. We're all going to experience it. Um, why rush to experience that? Um, why rush to experience strife, which is conflict? He says, full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight. Freight is kind of like a burden. So he's saying, you know, before, very soon your soul little boy is going to be burdened with all of the the weight of adulthood which he says is, is heavy as frost it's deep almost as life so all of the burdens and woes and um everything that's oppressive and restrictive about adulthood will soon weigh upon this child before he knows it he'll be grown up so wordsworth is asking him why are you playing at being an adult um and trying to kind of rush towards that state um, perhaps he feels that this child should should stay being a child. That's the end of movement two. The third and final movement of the poem begins with stanza nine. O oh joy that in our embers in something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive, 
the thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction. So Wordsworth here is describing his memories of childhood, the thought of our past years, which breed in him perpetual benediction, so a kind of uh, eternal blessing. He talks of, of embers, which are um, the last kind of glowing ashes of a fire. So there's something that's still burning within him. Um, and nature remembers what was so fugitive. So this idea of something that was, was fleeting, but there is still a memory of that. He goes on, not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed, delight and liberty, the simple creed of childhood, whether busy or at rest, with new-fledged hopes still fluttering in his breast. So here he is describing the kind of priorities of childhood, which are delight and liberty. That's the, the creed of childhood. A creed is kind of a set of beliefs. Um, and he uses a bird metaphor there to describe this hope fluttering in the child's breast. Um, but he says that it's not for these that he raises the song of thanks and praise. Um, rather, he raises this song of thanks and praise for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things, fallings from us, vanishings, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realised, high instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised. But for those first affections, those shadowy recollections which, be they what they may, are yet the fountain light of all our day, are yet a master light of all our seeing, Uphold us, cherish, and have the power to make our noisy years seem moments in the being of the eternal silence, truths that wake to perish never, which neither listlessness, nor mad endeavour, nor man, nor boy, nor all that is at enmity with joy can utterly abolish or destroy. Right, so he is raising his song of thanks and praise to obstinate questionings of sense and outward things. So he's talking of a more mature perspective here of the the adult position to be curious and to question the world. Um, but he talks of the, the shadowy recollections, which are the memories of childhood, which are still the fountain light of all our day and a master light of all our seeing. So there's a kind of paradoxical language being used here because he's talking of shadows of a shadowy memory but he says that these shadows are a source of light the fountain light the master light so actually these memories of childhood provide a light to Wordsworth as an adult this third movement is very much concerned with coming to terms with um being an adult and not having the um, the childhood perspective that he's described previously in the poem, but still finding um, value in an adult life where that prior ability has been lost. He says that um, truths that wake to perish never. So these mem these childhood memories and the experiences can never be completely destroyed or, or lost to age something will still remain um he says nor all that is en is at enmity with joy can utterly abolish or destroy so they can't be completely destroyed 
Um, and he ends the stanza by saying, Hence, in a season of calm weather, though in land far we be, our souls have sight of that immortal sea which brought us hither, can in a moment travel thither, and see the children sport upon the shore, and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore. So Wordsworth here is using this um, extended metaphor of land and sea. So the immortal sea is the sort of um, immortal realm, the divine realm, um, where we that we came from when we were born and that we will return to when we die. And when we grow up, we move further from the shore. So we're kind of born, when we're first born, we're, cl- we're still close to the shore, we're still close to that immortal realm. We could, we're right by this sea. And as we get older, we metaphorically move further and further inland. But he's saying that actually... Um, there are times when even though we're really far inland, we've grown up a lot, we're quite far away from the uh, divine, immortal place um, from our pre-existence, we can still see that this immortal sea will have times when we will be able to see it. Um, and in a moment, we will actually be transported there and we'll see these children playing and hear the, the mighty waters rolling on the shore. So the idea is that recollecting childhood allows us to return to that mental state of innocence and instinct where we are able to understand the divinity in in the world um, and we'll be closer to our memories of pre-existence. Stanza 10 repeats a lot of ideas from the third stanza. Then sing ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song and let the young lambs bound as to the tabor's sound. We in thought will join your throng Ye that pipe and ye that play, ye that through your hearts today feel the gladness of the May. So it's it's through thought, through remembering that we are able to join with um, the birds and the lambs um, and all of this kind of innocent, natural joy. What though the radiance which was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight, though nothing can bring back the hour of splendour in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. So he's saying that the radiance, that bright light, um, has now gone forever. It's been forever taken from his sight. So the ability to, to see the divine in nature has been lost and nothing can bring it back. Nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower. So that glory and splendor that he experienced as a child, nothing can bring that back. But he has a kind of more optimistic resolution now because he says we will grieve not rather find strength in what remains behind so he's not going to mourn the loss of that but actually he's going to focus on um, acknowledging what has been left and finding strength in that and what remains behind he says in the primal sympathy which having been must ever be in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering, in the faith that looks through death in years that bring the philosophic mind. So this memory of of childhood state, this primal sympathy, he says, which having been must ever be. So the idea is that because it existed once, it must always exist. And um, he talks of um, finding strength in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering. So he is finding strength in feelings of pity and sympathy that are inspired when we see human suffering. Um, And he ends the stanza by describing this more mature consciousness 
that looks through death, that has a more philosophic mind. The final stanza, Wordsworth addresses um, and lists the um, elements of nature again. And oh, ye fountains, meadows, hills and groves, forebode not any severing of our loves. Yet in my heart of hearts, I feel your might. I only have relinquished one delight to live beneath your more habitual sway. I love the brooks which down their channels fret, even more than when I tripped lightly as they. So he is suggesting here that he loves nature uh, more now as an adult. Um, He says, I love the brooks even more than when I tripped lightly. Um, And he goes on, the innocent brightness of a newborn day is lovely yet. The clouds that gather round the setting sun do take a sober colouring from an eye that hath kept watch a man's mortality. Another race hath been, and other palms are won. Thanks to the human heart by which we live, thanks to its tenderness, its joys and fears, to me the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. So the ending of the poem seems to be very much focused on man's mortality and the inevitability of death. Um, It's interesting that he talks about the newborn day um, and the setting sun in just a few lines. Perhaps the fact that the the new birth of the day and then the the day ending with the sun setting are so close together um, shows us that this this day, which seems to be a metaphor for life, is very short, that life itself is short. And it's inevitable that that the clouds will gather and the sun will set on our lives. But it seems to be a very... um, he seems to be very accepting of this he's giving thanks to humanity and how tender and joyful humanity can be and the final image of the the meanest flower mean here doesn't mean cruel and horrible it means sort of the uh, the kind of lowest flower so something i think this is probably referring to a dandelion because he talking about, talks about the meanest flower that blows and everyone um, knows what it's like to, to blow the dandelion and see um, see it all kind of uh blow away on the wind so he's saying that actually even just even something as seemingly insignificant as a dandelion and blowing on that will give him these these deep thoughts that um that from his mature philosophic mind he is able to have um which is something that he wouldn't have experienced um as a child so that brings us to the end of the third movement and the end of the poem And I hope you found that useful. Thank you for listening.